0: Running is very simple in terms of trying to organize it. But I guess perhaps maybe simple is not always still easy. Um, So, for example, going for a really slow jog for a long duration is still sometimes hard for people to do. And um, whereas just like going to run a hard session is the formula is very simple, but executing it is actually quite difficult sometimes. And, um, And I think sometimes trying to get people to at least experience it and dab their toe in the water and try and become that, if you start experiencing it, Uh, and obviously you're very patient you do it for a long time you will find your model I mean there was a great paper that I'm reading from the 1970s from Wilts and I'll have to send this one through to you or attach it to your show notes and stuff but essentially it was looking at sort of people who have been outside the normal to particular training models and they looked at some 400 meter runners, they looked at Kip Kino's training, but they also looked at Ron Clark's training as well. And it was fantastic looking at it because he ran pretty hard most days. Like <laughs> and, and but it worked for him. You know, he he had multiple world records and and um, yeah. and the same thing I think with Garrett Clayton, that a lot of the runs were sort of like in that like um, that middle zone and all sort of running everything. Not too easy, not too hard. And 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 if he could sustain it, you know, these guys would rock up and they run a world record. I, I guess yep. maybe they're very adaptable humans, their tissue stress might be quite adaptable and uh, and maybe that's there was magic in the fact that um, they had other features that not everyone has yep. and and so that, as you can see people, you know, assess what you would call making training errors but for one yes. person it might not be a training error, it might be their training protocol whereas for another person it will be a pure training error. So that's why that human individual variation is really yep. important to try and learn over time. And that's the, probably the biggest thing i've noticed with coaching i'm starting to find some athletes don't need to go to the well at all but they can still do it on race day and they just respond beautiful to a threshold type model of training and other other runners um or they, they use threshold running as their high stimulus yep. and they get enough adaption from that to continue to improve whereas others you know others who are really experienced who are really good at threshold running might need to go a bit deeper they might need to run at those high intensities to try and just to keep themselves improving they need to attract a slightly higher stimulus be really really high performers and And it seems as you become even better and better and better you need to searching you're trying to squeeze out a little bit more physiology each time and sometimes that means the pole ends even separate more you need to do more running at slow intensity and even more running at the high intensity and that that goes back to the bill a study where she found that the difference between top class runners and um just high performers and marathon runners in these uh european marathon runners that the the distance runners who are the real top class just they ran a lot more slower runs and their high intensity was just a bit more high intense so and i think Casado found the same thing recently as well that maybe the better runners they they probably spend a bit more time at that really high intensity 3k 5k work and they just run a bit more as well and essentially you're trying to just attract a bit more physiology yep. but in the early days perhaps maybe something simple you think of like trying to give you the least amount of training stress to elicit the biggest response training wise and sometimes for someone that might be staying at 30, 40 k's a week with one hard session a week and then eventually they'll adapt, then you add more. <laughs> the puzzle is, you know, which part do you add more? More duration, intensity and I think that's built on their, their history of injury and their goals. So, yes, yeah, it takes time.
1: <laughs> Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner, Welcome back to episode 40 of the Run Culture Podcast. Today I have an absolute ripping podcast. For those runners struggling to get their heads around injury and poor performance, this one is for you. This is evergreen content. Being the running physio nerd I am, this podcast is exactly the podcast I envisioned delivering to educate the running public on a concept I want more runners to understand. It's absolute gold. I reckon some runners should listen to it three times over. It's all about injury prevention and optimising performance, the crux of it. So listeners, fellow runners, coaches, forward this to any runner you know that is injury prone or has a tendency not to listen to training advice. Today I interview Michael Nischke. Michael Nischke is a sports podiatrist by trade, runner by blood. He completed his Bachelor of Podiatry in 2006 at the University of South Australia. He's now a partner at the Sports and Arthritis Clinic, SPARC, Uh, in Adelaide with some of the nation's leading sports and exercise physicians. He's a level two advanced running coach in middle and long distance running at the Adelaide Harriers Athletics Club. He's also undertaken his master's by research at Adelaide Uni. His research project is focused around the training characteristics of recreational runners and the relationship between performance and injury. His passion for running and the message he is so passionate in delivering in terms of preventing running related injury, reverberated just so much with me. His philosophy on what we should consider to prevent injury and optimize performance is something I want runners to hear. It quashes so many myths out there. As you'll hear, he comes from a sprinting background and has gradually over time ran longer distances, culminating last year in the Gold Coast Marathon where he ran a fantastic time of low 2.30 for the distance. He was also an anatomy lecturer at the University of South Australia. So he's a man of so many hats. Let's jump right into the interview. Here he is, Michael Niske.
0: So I I used to lecture human anatomy at um, at UniSA, and as soon as I decided to take on uh, my postgraduate uh, you know efforts it's I, I definitely pushed that one aside as well yeah uh, so that became that was like a part-time sort of job I was going every sort of you know into the cadaver lab and that I was really enjoying that to be honest that was probably something awesome. yeah and probably enjoyed that more than anything else Um, but I guess what happens after four or five years when you want to contribute to the research yeah that takes over and different institution as well so I'm now doing my, my postgrad at Adelaide Uni whereas UniSA was where I was lecturing and I still do guest lecturing for the podiatry students in the third and fourth year, um, but that's very quick, sort of sharp, acute lectures. They sort of do block teaching and I'll go in for three to four hours and, you know, cover footwear or cover, um, you know, load management, for example. So that's pretty, pretty sparse. Yep. Yep. Yeah.
1: And how old are you?
0: Uh, I'm 34.
1: What I was trying to work out is like, because you've been graduated since, was it, 2006 yeah it was a three year so how old were you when you started
0: uni i started 18 and uh oh. it was a three-year degree <laughs> three year. yeah yeah yep.
1: yeah 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 Oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Oh, I was thinking like I don't, know, I mustn't have done the math right. I was like, oh, that, does that mean you finish Year Twelve at sixteen?
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's it's funny. So it's sort of I suppose three year degree was always sort of uh, a bit amusing, podiatry wise. But we had large contact hours. I think the the course is definitely four years now, and, um, and yeah, the contact time's a bit less. So it was sort of just a bit more condensed into a, to a three year course here. You know, we had up to 30 contact hours uh, a week in second year. So, which is not as you don't hear that as often in allied health anymore. So. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, and then you started, your career is more a sprinter and a high jumper?
0: Yep. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in a country town called Loxton and uh, I enjoyed, enjoyed enjoyed living in the country. I suppose I played all the sports like football and basketball etc but um, definitely uh, loved athletics and was probably, I mean obviously you're at school you, you know you, if you're at the, the top of echelon of, of athletics it doesn't mean a lot but um, I took it a bit more seriously after about year 10 or so and had a coach in, in Adelaide who'd, who'd ring me every Sunday and we would do it by correspondence but I definitely was uh, predominantly a 400, 800-meter runner. And uh, even when I moved to Adelaide, like I first, I guess, in South Australia, the pro running was relatively popular here, um, which would be things like the base Sheffield and the still gift. And I joined a a pro running stable. And, um, yeah, my first three to four years when I moved to Adelaide, so when I was doing my university degree, I was predominantly running, you know, gifts, so 120 through to long sprints, like 550 meters, and even stepping up to the 800 and things like that was not as common, but um, I definitely probably gravitated towards 400 800 meter running just with the type of runner I was.
1: Yeah, is it true that you've got a PB of 11.1 for 100? Yeah, yep,
0: yeah, I ran 11.1 twice actually. Um, I actually ran, um, I ran faster than that, but we had a 4.2 tail that was just over 11 seconds, yeah. but um, it was under 11.1. but... Actually I've tried to message one of my coaches from two thousand and four and see if he's got some footage. Um from I won one year I won the won the a one twenty race at Mount Gambier and it's probably the best shape I was in. Then it was a week after I ran the eleven one six, I think it was. And um but it was on VHS, so he has to put it on uh, to he has to go back <laughs> through the archives and, and put it on disc for me. But um yeah, no, I definitely spent more time sprinting and and uh and but definitely was still better over 400 meters than I was over 120, even though I, you sort of gravitated towards the 120 because in pro running, there was a bit more money associated with those races. So, oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, and high jump. Like, what did you get up to with
0: your high jump? Yeah, How high did you jump? in high school, I jumped. I mean, the ninety. So, um, oh, wow. so it was obviously all grass orientated jumping through there, and um and probably when I got to year eleven, that sort of stopped, and I sort of took up more of the distance running, well, middle distance running and long sprinting at that stage. And um but yeah, no, I was sort of I was really enjoyed high jump in the younger days, and I think probably playing basketball. You know, you would. Back when the internet first came out, you'd sort of download how to increase your vertical jump sort of thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, can I touch the ring? Can I dunk the ball? And, yeah. and uh, obviously high jump sort of was associated to, you know, probably playing a lot of basketball as a kid.
1: Yep. And, and then what sparked the interest like to go longer and longer? Because like last year, that was probably the first time I met you was after the Gold Coast um, marathon where you, you ran a really good time and you were just over two thirty. Um, and and then like I was looking through all your PBs, and you've run fifteen, just a shade over fifteen for five, and a bit over thirty one for ten k, and and a seventy minute sort of half marathon.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I mean, I I gravitated towards that with with age, I suppose. I think when I started working more clinically, um, I reckon. You know, I guess you, you can relate to this very well. I think when you're a sprinter and you're running middle distance running, for example, you you've got to go to a track at a particular time. You normally train with a stable or a group. And uh, I think some of my shifts in work started to finish at around about 5.30 and I wouldn't get to training until 6 o'clock and I'd miss the warm-up for some of the the sprint yep. groups. And so distance running became a really good avenue to be able to you know, finish work and still collect the 60-minute jog, for example. And obviously that, that adds to yep. being a great distance runner. And so the flexibility of distance running became... um uh, it became much easier to be honest, and I think probably at the end of uh, doing a lot of pro running and chasing races like the Bay Sheffield, you get caught up in events like that in a small town like South Australia. but uh, I enjoyed some of the fun runs, and i definitely wasn't i 'm definitely working against my physiology a little bit i think i 'm not not the greatest um, distance runner in terms of maybe genetic makeup but um, the beauty of distance running is that you can just you know the, the the evolution the adaptions are built on years not built on weeks, whereas sprinting you know weeks' yeah. time you can get yourself in a really good sprinting shape, but uh distance running doesn't really work like that so yep
1: yeah what 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 was the training like when you were doing the sprinting like what what were you just doing like a lot of um uh, you know, shorter, shorter, sharper sessions.
0: Um, yeah, it's a good point. Like I trained with a, a very traditional pro running coach when I first moved to Adelaide. Uh, we did what we call what he called the Jim Bradley program. Um, Paul Young, who was a coach of uh, guys like Clay Watkins, we had a really good stable at the time. Clay was a forty-five-nine runner for four hundred, and and we had other sprinters like Duncan Tippins, who was a forty-six-four hundred meter runner, and. He, he, the coach won still back in 1985, so he had a large passion for pro running. And we used to spend the winter, we had 14 week protocol where we would do the Jim Bradley protocol where you were hitting six by three minute rounds on the speedball with a minute in between, um, sit ups, oh, yeah. push ups, chin ups, dips, squats, um, uh, yeah. by five reps, by five rounds of that. So, and then we'd do testing on the seventh week and the 14th week. and. And then we go out and do some strides, basically. that was the whole winter. Um, nothing more, nothing less. It was just you know it was all muscular yeah. endurance stuff in the gym and then then come the i guess the the pre competition phase we would do things like um uh, like larger rep so shorter repetitions of sixty to eighty meters um, out to what he called 20, 50s, or ins and outs where you run fifty meters accelerate and you jog for or sort of float for uh, twenty meters and then accelerate for fifty meters and you would complete between eight to 12 rounds of that. And you would literally do this almost uh, five to six times a week. And, uh, yep. and then I suppose being a slightly longer runner once or twice a week, I'd go do the same sort of protocol up hills, or I would do a protocol where I would be running a, maybe maybe sl- one longer run on the weekends, which um, which would be through the hills for maybe an hour at the time. So but Everything else was pretty short, sharp, and shiny, and and um, yeah, yeah. it was interesting. I <laughs> suppose it's how you interpret it. I was looking back, and some, some seasons I would go into the season with a bit of hamstring tendonitis because I'd be running with athletes that were just much more talented than I was and faster, and so they'd be going six, 60, 70 percent for their, for their run throughs, and I'd be going 80 90 percent, and then backing up the next day and doing the same thing, and, and uh, yeah, you know, yeah, high loads on tendons back to back days, and and uh, yep. not wondering where you went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I I totally agree with what you're saying
1: before about um, it is so much easier to fit. Like I I found um, uh, once I turned to marathon training um, uh, over the last five or so years, it's been easier to fit in around work um, just because a lot of the training is just, you know, that easy sort of aerobic running. um, And even like I found a lot of the sessions, um, like threshold sessions, they're easier to just turn up to like mentally. Spot on. Um, Yeah. Yeah. it's great. It's, so is that what you found, like, when you ter- turned to sort of, you know, running the longer stuff, like, you found that as well, like, just mentally, and um, it was just easier to, to fit it in from that side of things as well when you've only got, like, a shorter amount
0: of time? Yeah, most be- certainly. And I, I even think when I first started distance running, you know, I, I went to a model um, traditionally where you would run uh, with a group with, you know, maybe three sort of moderately hard sessions or hard sessions per week, and you would jogging in between, and even not sort of having the intuition or the knowledge of the sport um and definitely not the science knowledge of the sport. You know, I probably ran every day relatively hard and and even even yeah. those scenarios like coming from a sprint background, not having the just the general um load behind me, for example, like you I would still develop a few of those traditional overuse type sorenesses like Achilles, tendinopathy, etc just from running a bit too hard. But um I think when I got to about thirty, I, I when I joined the Adelaide Harriers, for example, like I took a lot of pressure off myself and um and I sort of went back to running sort of two pretty hard sessions per week on a Tuesday and Saturday. And the rest, I was just trying to build up my time and jogging. And a lot of my jogs regressed back from 4.20 pace to maybe sort of 4.40 pace. And and I could just collect a lot more time. And uh, there was magic in time for me because I guess I wasn't used to running long durations. And I'd probably still argue now in 2020, like four or five years of doing, you know, mileage that's between 90 to 100 consistently I still battle with the long runs more so than anything else so um, yep, I haven't completely yep, yep. adapted to that type of training completely but um, I guess the ease of it psychologically you know going out for an easy run um, there's a lot of magic in that for distance running and um, sometimes I, I think going back historically maybe I didn't value that as well as I should have and, and uh, you know I'm still developing at 34 years of age as a longer distance runner because of um, just being naive as a as a, as a mid-20s <laughs> So
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I was exactly the same. I remember going through school, um, just uh, trying to pretty much race every training session um, and then always underperforming on race day um, and not knowing why. Um, and, it, and it really, really hasn't been until sort of, yeah, I suppose the last, um, yeah, probably eight, nine years that I really realised the value in just, um, yeah, some of my easy runs are even f- above five minutes per day yeah. now. Um and um, yeah, it it um it really has um like like it really has helped um m- me like um turn up on race day um uh and and not and uh and perform when I want to perform um so yeah um this sort of leads us to like because I read um on your um website um so at um the sports and. Arts- clinic um about your philosophy and I really like your philosophy it said like your aim with most um runners that you treat um as a a sports podiatrist is to uh create sustainable um, habits and consistent training and and um create a self-efficacy runner that um can independently um make the correct correct decision um in terms of self-management and and um back themselves on race day like I, I thought that was an awesome awesome philosophy like um was it partly your your learnings as a sports podiatrist as well and everything that you've done um in terms of um yeah your work that sort of helped you sort of come to realizing um that yeah you can't sort of just
0: nail every run <laughs> yeah I, I think so i think what happened eventually is i think you already touched on it as well as the ability to be so consistent in running is sort of it's 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 what leads to um uh, opening all the doors to be able to run personal bests and continue to chase those adaptions required to become a better runner and but unfortunately that's what's not simple about the running aspect of it is that people can't quite work out what what you know why they're not sustainable why they suffer from Probably issues like you know probably running related injury is the the most common sort of um you know blockage for for most distance runners to be consistent and and like the data's pretty clear on that now, like going through my scoping review you know it's it's pretty apparent that you know inexperienced runners um they you know they get um more injuries per thousand hours of running than say experienced runners and so there's a difference in normally um, we start looking at um, the retrospective data of really sustainable endurance athletes, whether they're um, you know a, a cross country skier or a, um, a cyclist or a, uh, a, a runner. They they tend to try they all they all collect a lot of time in running and uh, and there's magic in just collecting training time consistently over many many years. And so anything that sort of uh, you know can restrict consistent running will sometimes lead to. Uh, will lead to a a plateau or um, it'll lead to you know that boom bust cycle which we often see clinically where people come in and out of injury and uh, I think that has a lot to do with more so people's training characteristics and you being a physiotherapist would understand that most people come through the clinic with um, you know uh, a desire to find out why they're sore why they're injured and they'll normally um, they'll normally sort of uh, jump to I guess their their self-beliefs as to what, what what is the actual you know reason for their injury and maybe in physio it's normally they'll say oh you know i've got weak glutes or so my strength is a bit compromised i think that might be my issue um uh, in, in, in podiatry it's pretty simple they usually think it's you know it's their footwear that that is highlighted to them not being able to handle the dosage of running that um that they couldn't do and but when you sit down and speak to a lot of the patients you try and look at their training characteristics and you compare them to those who are really sustainable so like your you know high-end or high-performing runners is that sometimes it's the training characteristics that diverge and they're, they're quite different from sustainable running. And, you know, we, we learn a lot from uh, people that are very consistent and sometimes trying to take those habits and learn one, you know, what they are, and then two, why people do them. And then three, can you convert those habits into, uh, into a runner that's, you know, inexperienced and learning and can you get them to buy into the process of, um, you know, organizing their training to be sustainable. And often that means, you know footwear and our strength protocols They are definitely a piece of the puzzle but they they may not sit quite as high up in terms of what's important to keep someone consistently running
1: yeah no it's um uh like it's it's that's such a good point you you make and um yeah what why i reached out to you was um yeah about a week ago i just i just um stumbled upon one of your blogs that you wrote um about this exact topic and it was about managing the runner and and uh yeah, you 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 wrote this uh or you came up with that, this hierarchy of managing running related injuries and and at the bottom and the most important um part was yeah you sort of really specified training characteristics and training habits and um uh yeah in terms of um you know how often is someone running what volume is someone doing the intensity that someone's doing um uh, what progressions are someone is someone choosing to to do from week to week um yeah. And then, you know, the next most important point, you sort of said the rest and the recovery so that people adapt um, from that stress that they're putting on their body. Um, and then, yeah. Uh, then obviously you sort of said, said tissue tolerance um, was the next category where, so someone, which is very much re- related to someone's training history, I suppose. Um, um, and then, you know, you might add training, strength training in there to, to increase someone's tissue tolerance yeah. over time Um Uh, smartly and then you sort of said biomechanics was was next um uh and um and largely that sort of just underpinned where someone was going to get sore depending on how they run but there was no like perfect perfect technique like there's no perfect way to run everyone runs a little bit differently um and it gets a bit more refined and efficient uh the more they run um uh, but it probably just um D- d- underpins where they're probably going to get sore if they do sort of load up too quickly and then yeah equipment and surface was the was the um also a factor but not the most important thing and and i probably see the same as a physio like probably the first thing someone comes in is says oh i've got you know a sore sore this and that because um yeah i've got flat feet and um because um yeah i because i wear these shoes and and they're more often than not sort of, um, really quickly, um, blaming, um, I suppose, uh, yeah, you know, their equipment or, or, um, or the way they, their biomechanics, um, um, and that that might be a small part of it, but it's, it's, it's often if they, they load it up slowly over time, um, patiently, um, uh, um, like often that's probably something that they probably, um, that, that's more the,
0: the factor that they, um, yeah spot on. on and um and obviously that varies to the person's experience you know, um I always like to think that things like footwear and equipment and the way that you run and you know your your tissue tolerance or the strength that you have and your history of running these features sort of determine the dosage of running that you can handle as you know as does something like genetics et cetera as well. But of course, the easiest thing to be yep. able to truly modify, but it's obviously the hardest in human nature to do it, is to is to try and manipulate how you train and and work out how your body, the time it requires to adapt to a particular training stress. And and this becomes, I guess, in terms of a physiological output, we start looking at people trying to improve their physiological performance in terms of, you know, their attributes like their VO2 max or their lactate threshold or their running economy. And, and so people are searching for, you know, the perfect Manipulation of training to be able to attract those benefits to be a better runner and of course every every run that you go for you you know create a stimulus and a, a particular stress and how your body responds to it is unfortunately quite complicated and that 's why even our load management strategies sometimes become a bit vague from one person to another and uh, there are so many ways to assess load um in you know from nineteen seventy from the bannister model all the way through to now where people were utilizing acute chronic workload ratios to be able to define you know um, what's too much too soon and unfortunately it's not as simple as that Uh, if it was we definitely would have these formulas and people like to have a a magic ratio or a number to be able to work out you know how people should organize their training how much training they can handle but it's sort of it's almost a little bit uh, to some extent intuitive Um, and I think you know, early days for runners. Sometimes, you know, monitoring your load and working out how stressful your running is is a really good thing to learn. Because, of course, um, if you're new to something, of course, you don't really know what to expect. And so, you know, using um, effort scales, which can sometimes be, you know, using your rate of perceived exertion. Um, if you're lucky enough to to know your values of heart rate, which is obviously difficult without baseline testing, um, you can start putting these arbitrary scores on how hard you're working. And then, obviously, you can use simple scales to work out as to, you know, how you're recovering from it. And that starts to determine whether you are, uh, you know, you can, you can handle hard running sessions, you know, every two days or every three days or every four days. Um, but normally what happens is people will go out and experiment. And uh, if, they're, if they're less experienced, maybe their intuition's not quite as, or their expectations of what they're meant to feel like might not be as in tune. And so they'll go out and they'll usually make a training error. They'll get injured and they'll learn that way. So eventually, they'll be able to eliminate the process yep. by making the errors over time. And I'm definitely one of the runner who has learned by uh, making many errors. And um, but I've I've trained with people who who arguably you know have really good self intuition to their training, um, either from experience or just maybe their personality traits where they can make good decisions and they're happy to uh to work out when they place their hard run or take an easy day when they need to. And then they become very sustainable. And but those runners interest me because I think um, often when you select some of the best endurance athletes, we look at their physiological variables and that's, that's very important, but sometimes looking at their behavioral characteristics as to, you know, why they choose their particular training models and why they choose to run hard on those, why they can go deep on race day, but maybe um, they don't need to do that as often in, in general training um that interests me a lot as well because those athletes tend to be around for a long time and as we mentioned at the start, the magic's in the yep. long time more than anything else, isn't it? So Yeah. Do you feel like
1: you've found a sort of sustainable um like do you feel like you've through experience and um trial and error and through injury and um and then also like um I don't know, lackluster performances or overtraining, do you feel like you've found a good um good um, mix now of what what you can handle what leads to improved performance but also what leads to sustainable running and no injury yeah i think i think personally
0: in terms of the way i organize my training like i i I feel like um doing many years of sprinting like i don't need to expose myself to as much like real faster running i'm sort of always um sort of near my top end speed throughout the year but of course i I enjoy that more than anything else because i'm probably a bit better at it um and i don't enjoy the longer running so i think I've had to be quite patient and i don't get too many injuries from running long and slow so i spend a lot more time doing that now than what i used to uh and i realize that's important to be a better yep. distance runner is to collect all those um you know all those that, that general low intensity to be able to be economical at you know using oxygen improve my running economy and with no real injuries from doing that model like i find that to be the guts of my training these days and and, and twice a week, I'll, I'll still try and work hard. Not always, I wouldn't go to the well in most of my running sessions, but I'll normally, um, you know, run to create a higher stimulus and probably takes me three days to truly recover from them in terms of recovering, like even perceptually. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, having a history of um, more calf issues and things like that, I still utilize different types of shoes to try and, you know, reduce my loading on calves and, and i still obviously i think my yep. my stride probably a bit shorter now than what it used to be because of the volume and maybe that protects me from um you know particular injuries compared to say when i was a bit younger and had a longer stride and maybe had higher peak loads going through each step and so i think almost that's yep. your body almost works that out intuitively you just need to you know sit back and listen to it and i'd love to be the person that can handle you know three hard high intensity sessions per week and and a long run on a sunday and then jog in between I I probably don't have the adaptability, uh, either genetically or maybe the history attached to be able to handle a model like that. And I definitely have tried many times. And, and I think you, I think eventually you work out that the, the magic is in, yeah, consistency. If I don't miss, you know, four or five weeks of running throughout a year, um, I, I can perform really well. And we definitely see this in, in our high performing athletes. They're just so consistent. And, uh, And But, you know, we see high performers who do, you know, go through boom-bust cycles as well. And um, so there's, you know, sometimes we're having a a, a debate with a guy that I run with saying that, you know, is it necessary to get running-related injuries to be the best you possibly can be? And it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe at the end of the day you are trying to push new boundaries. And the beauty of distance running is that, you know, after you do a certain amount of load for a period of time and you do it consistently, eventually your body probably doesn't get as much adaption to it. So you have to change something. And it's usually one of those tra- training characteristics. Yep. You're either adding, you know, another frequency, so another run throughout the week, or you're adding another duration, so a bit yep. more time onto your runs, extending them, or you're intensifying them. And um, it's sort of not until you, you know, need to actually increase your training load um, to get an adaption. Um, you know, if you start to plateau, well, then there's a time to actually, you know, add a training characteristic. But um, even now, like I'm reduced my training load a little bit, um, coming back from a small injury uh back in December and uh I feel like I'm, you know, only just adapting to eighty K's per week perceptually, whereas I think prior to the injury, more like 120 Ks a week was my running. And oh no, I'll probably be able to get back there. But right now I feel very satisfied with adapting to eighty K's a week. And if I feel like I was not adapting and I was plateauing, well then I would I would add a bit more. And I think that's the fine art of it, isn't it? You're trying to attract a little bit more stimulus um for more adaption without trying to overstress it to set you back again. So Yes, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it's um it's so tricky because we're we're all trying to get better and perform better so you have to stress the system um but then like um we have to sort of be wary of like um not going too too hard or not not overdoing it and and then I suppose like I think what what makes it tricky as well is you know with age like um what what we used to be able to do, I don't know, um, 10 years ago, we might not be able to do today. Um, or even what we did last week, we might not be able to do this week because of various stresses, like whether it's like you, you, you've, you've changed jobs, you've got some kind of, um, external stress, like family, um, wise, or, um, you know, even the, the women's sort of, um, you know, with their, in their, you know, where, where, where they're at in their cycle, um, for the month. Um, and, um, yeah, even just um, appreciating, um, you know, relative energy deficiency. Like, it's 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 hard because like, you've got those um, other uh, d- different principles That's of right. load going on as well. Um, so appre- appreciating them um, and then appreciating the effect that aging has where um, you do lose a bit of muscle strength as you get older too. Like, so a lot of people that I've, I've seen, like, they go, oh, but I used to be able to do this. Um, uh, but then you sort of have to sort of go through well what have you done since and um or um yeah you know, that was 10 years ago um and and you you have to appreciate that sometimes you have to you're, you're a bit different and you might have to change your training a little bit to try to and and you might be able to get back to that point but it's sort of take you have to give yourself yeah a spot on to and get that's back to that, that that those
0: internal loads which are almost silent to some extent as well and you know factors like sleep and diet and general internal stresses from work they they definitely you know maybe um they definitely don't haste though like if you have large amounts of internal stress throughout your life to be the ability to absorb an external load or the stress that comes from a training stress can sometimes be a bit delayed and And I guess if you do that over a long period of time, that's where people maybe um, regress into a model of you know non-functional overtraining syndrome. and I, I guess you normally have to be training enough to be able to get that. and obviously you and I would see a lot of recreational runners that probably don't sort of train they don't collect enough training stress to be able to get themselves to that point. Um, but of course they can also influence you know you know tissue repair as well and that's definitely something we deal with on a daily basis is um, particular training models will probably load different tissues differently and uh, and that's an important feature for sustainability and uh, meaning that you know if I'm I can't collect the absolute speeds I used to um, and relatively they feel hard but absolute speeds definitely not as good as when I was when I was 24 25 and and probably another factor to that if I, you know, collect some really fast sprints at the end of a, a running session, um, you know, I can't I probably used to be able to do them back day on day on day. And whereas now I can probably separate them by two or three days in a year. My tendon's probably still sort of slightly reactive to them. So um, and that's an important piece to actually sort of modifying someone's training model, particularly for their history, but also their injury history and obviously accommodating their age. You know, if someone's battling tendinopathy, a lot of the time our treatment protocol is to just really just to modify the training characteristics we can normally keep these people running a lot of the time but you're actually accommodating their history and accommodating their injury status and someone may have Achilles tendinopathy and you just might be weary and say well actually let's let's make sure that our faster running sessions that perhaps maybe store energy in your tendon or your Achilles tendon let's try and separate them by at least 72 hours and allow the collagen to repair and separate them with some nice slow runs in between and um and then suddenly they're able to, to collect some training stress but um, You know, and then obviously in the background, you'll start to, you know, build up your tissue tolerance to try and able to handle more stress in the future. And then suddenly you're creating this pathway to keeping someone running. And a lot of the times if people take time off running, well, the risk of injury related to not running becomes higher again. So the key key is always trying to keep someone moving forward, but it just might be for a a bit of a sacrifice of one characteristic and, uh, you know, increasing the focus on another characteristics. And you could almost make the same debate for patellofemoral pain. We often see this in recreational runners who sort of, you know, are, uh, you know, increasing their volume for the first time and so larger accumulative loads. And we say, well, actually, maybe for a short period of time, we can't quite collect those, um, those accumulative loads. So maybe we turn this running session into a shorter duration and at the end you collect some strides or some short heel sprints where the peak loads are higher but the duration is less and this might decrease um, loading on patellofemoral joint but still give them a training stimulus that allows them to continually move forward. Yeah,
1: so they're still running, and you've just altered their training characteristics um, in both those examples. So you've got an example with the Achilles um, um, tendinopathy and also knee pain. Um, so both of those um, runners, you're still keeping consistent. You're still running, but you've just altered their yeah. Spot on. And obviously, there's slightly. points in
0: time where these things probably aren't as realistic. If someone's a sprinter and they have Achilles tendinopathy. It's pretty tough at that point in time because they normally need to collect sprint training to be um, <laughs> to be better at sprinting. But for a short period of time, maybe yeah. you're tempo running them, for example. So you know you're keeping the the tolerance of the um the tissue like the the threshold of pain a bit lower, and they're still exposing the tendon to load, but not the provocative load or as much provocative load. So. Meanwhile, in the background, you may strengthen it, but the same with knee pain as well. Like a lot of the times when we see iliotibial band syndrome and in runners sort of doing their first trail races, they start descending. There's a lot more braking loads and, and we get that traditional lateral knee pain. And often we sort of, you know, we can, we they don't get pain until like, you know, the 10, 20, 30 minute mark. And sometimes, you know, you're getting out for a 10, 15 minute jog and then trying to get them to place value into doing, you know, six by 200, because there's still a training stimulus attached to it. They're still running. They're still hitting the ground it may not be preparing them for their ultra marathon, but if they're doing that rather than resting, um, they're definitely closer to getting back to what they need to do once the tissue starts to heal. So you're just trying to, yeah, manipulate characteristics and get get the runner to buy into doing something a little bit different to still collect the training stimulus, but maybe offload that particular tissue by, yeah, by just changing the mechanics that are associated to faster running and slower running sometimes make a big difference. And, And while I said biomechanics is probably not as important for risk of injury... A lot of times, when you look at training organisation, your biomechanics um, organically alters from running slow to running fast, and the tissue loads obviously follow suit with that as well. And and that's why I think just general training organisation and that variation throughout your training cycle arguably becomes um, you know preventative of injury by itself. You're allowing one tissue to adapt while you're still getting a training stimulus the next day by running. You might be letting you know your tendons adapt in your lower leg by jogging slowly the day after, but you're still getting a great aerobic stimulus from the slow jogging. So
1: so like once again you can sort of use that like you're changing the training characteristics by training changing the intensity. By changing the intensity, you're changing why. Yeah, the load yeah spot on. I think that's that's a
0: great way of putting it.
1: Yeah. 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 And that, like I I I mean, biomechanics are important. Like um uh, uh like don't get us wrong. Like I I mean I had a patient last year, um who I was, I was just racking my brain. Like I, I spent about three months with him, and he had patellofemoral pain, and um, uh, i had um, uh, been doing all these strength exercises of his hips um, and um, his quads, and and uh, we tried we tried um, various different footwear, and um, uh, we we tried um, getting back to running, but all we yeah, could okay. do was get up to eight hundred meters. Um, and look, yeah, um, I, I actually didn't try and, and it, it'd be good to have my time again. I didn't actually try running yep. faster with him. We just tried jogging. Um, but uh, as soon as um, – then I got him in the clinic and I was sort of like a last sort of roll of the dice and and I saw that his knees were just yep. like um, touching each other as he was running. And I was like, oh, let's just try to, um, try to run like we're running on a line and running yep. your foot either side of the line. And, um, yeah, he messaged me two days later and he he ran for 25 minutes with no pain. And, um, and that was the first time he'd done that for three months. And, um, and for him, like, and this isn't going to work for everyone, (laughs) because it doesn't, but for him, that biomechanical change was enough to, to take the stress a little bit off his knees and, um. So he could suddenly um Yeah, spot yeah, on. Man. so a that's the
0: key. Like you're trying to manipulate sometimes the way they hit the ground to try and particularly offload that structure on that tissue. And you know, widening the base of gates always one of those slightly harder cues. But obviously, if you've got a track and you can run either side of the line, that's a great little cue to be able to get people to, to decrease that knee valgus or that internal rotation um, that you may be associating to the running injury. And the same thing goes when you look at someone run in that sagittal plane and we often know even from Chris Napier's work that sometimes higher braking loads can be associated to, to running related injury a bit more as well. And we often see perhaps maybe runners um, sort of landing in front of their center of mass a bit more, especially the less experienced runners and, and higher braking loads may be associated there. And so you might be getting them to stand a bit taller and, uh, you know, increase their rate of stride to a small percentage. Yep. And that might be enough to put them underneath the threshold of, um, yep. you know, of, of essentially their knee pain occurring and, but I guess, I, I guess a great example that when people yep. increase their step rate and keep the pace controlled, a lot of the time that becomes a great strategy to decrease those, those big peak loads going through the lower leg. Um, it, but obviously, you know, if you're yep. getting someone to go out and run maybe um, 10 by 100 meter strides or 10 by 200 meters, you know, perhaps maybe they're going to automatically take a higher stride as well. But not everyone will do that. Some people will go out and they'll run, um, you know, they'll run that 200s and they'll overstride even more. And that might highlight their knee pain or because it's less duration, it won't highlight their knee pain. So sometimes cues are required, but trying to manipulate a particular um, type of running session. So often, you know, there seems to be a, you know, you watch a hundred meter Olympic sprint final and, and everyone's got high knee lift. Everyone's really tall postured. And, and you see the sort of this similarity because everything's very mechanically efficient, trying to use as much energy from point A to point B Whereas when you run a marathon, it sort of goes the other end of the spectrum. They're trying to be as metabolically efficient as they can so they their body regresses to a, a gate that essentially is um, the best gate for their running economy for that particular duration. And um, we're trying to become efficient at those. And so often when we look at training models, if people tend to go out and run the same run every single run three to four times per week, let's just say um, I, I guess you know we definitely see well, it's part of, part of my postgraduate, we're trying to see what lower performing runners do compared to higher performing runners. And we started to see early trends. Obviously, we need to look through the data, but early trends of people sort of regressing to their easy runs being a little bit harder and the, um, the harder runs not being quite as uh, hard, they're a bit, easier, a bit easier. So maybe each run ends up becoming almost the same load every single day. And those tissues don't get time to adapt. And you can imagine that if you're doing a threshold run compared to a jog, you, you you globally have to open stride a bit more anyway, don't you? So that's just sort of what happens. And so the loads are a bit higher. You know, if you're running a relatively um, fast pace for you um, each day, perhaps maybe the loading rates is what we can be either controlling the the intensity of that, or if you want to continue to run the intensity, well then maybe we need to be able to manipulate the training gate so you can handle that degree of load uh, as well. So it's a bit of a picking and choosing. You're either changing someone's characteristics or sometimes you're changing someone's gate attributes or accommodating it with footwear, for example, as well.
1: Yep. So it's so individual, isn't it? Like it's um, like you, you're taking into account someone's like past history of their injuries and where they've overloaded in the past and, and maybe their um, biomechanics or their, how they're structurally made and, and um, you know, yeah, maybe their, their habits of, when, of how yeah. they run, like their neuromuscular habits. Like you're just sort of taking that into account um, and, and then also, um, trying to, um, make the, and then you're looking at their past yeah, history spot of training on. as well, their yep. training age. Um, yeah. And, and you're sort of accommodating all that into a sort of, um, one sort of, and then you're, you're trying to make some decisions off that, um, and, and learn from what's failed in the past and, and what can you do to sort of maybe, um, get that area that you're overloading stronger, but then maybe also off. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I mean, there was a um, great systematic
0: review from Adam Holm, who's a yep. researcher based in Queensland. He works in complex systems. Now his, his work's really interesting. He worked with uh, Dr. Rasmus Nielsen over in the run safe group in Denmark, who do some great work with um, running related epidemiology. And uh, he sort of looked at dividing, you know, yeah. your, your, your risk factors for running related injury into modifiable or non-modifiable risks And I think that's a really good way to think about it because, I mean, Uh some of these non-modifiable risks, things like your running experience, well, you can't really modify that. You need to wait that out. Your previous injury history, you can't modify that. But they're both important factors to determine how you're going to set someone's training up for this protocol. If someone has a history of knee pain, well, maybe you might be biomechanically looking for an overstride. Maybe you'll be putting them into less drop of a running shoe, for example, so less heel pitch. Or maybe you'll make sure that their training characteristics aren't volume-based at that period of time. So, And then when it comes to things like um, you know, uh, your, your experience, well, perhaps maybe like just uh, people's experience, um, people will sort of just, I guess, intuitively go out the door and try and collect as much physiology as they can. So they'll try and run in that, that sweet spot, which is sort of like not too hard, not too easy. And we do know that if you run in that sweet spot, you do collect a lot of physiology. And within four to five or six weeks, you'll, you'll be quite fit. But then what happens is you sort of probably can't collect as much duration, for example, and then you suddenly plateau. You search for more intensity, perhaps, and and there can be a bit of an error there. Whereas over three to four years of experience, I think you know runners will you know intuitively, if they've got experience, they'll they'll start to slow some runs down, and they might add some more high interval sessions, and then suddenly the training yeah. almost starts to self-organize itself, and um, yeah, and then they start to develop more sustainable yep. characteristics related to running, but I think maybe if you you know move into running and come out of running, um, quite often that boom-bust cycle, maybe we sort of always go back into that model and that's why people can't get into consistent habits. And the early days for an inexperienced runner, maybe, maybe we try and guide them objectively, say, well, let's give them some cues to be able to monitor their load. Um, let's sort of discuss with them about you know what's 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 easy feel like what's hard feel like and then trying to give them a bit more exposure to different types of running so they can you know maybe they need more organization given and then eventually they can you know after three to four years they'll be able to organize it themselves yeah no
1: that's that's um yeah so good and like i also reckon um i just see so many people in a rush like they're just um like they just want to do it now and they're so passionate and they're um uh, it's like it's exciting because like they're, they're trying to make a good change in their life or they're they're really enjoying their running but everything needs to happen now and they're not they're not viewing the whole picture or the bigger picture and um they're just trying to train hard every day and try to make it happen um just just that's that, right they're, they're yeah. not appreciating that it just takes time um but yeah i reckon you're right like some kind of diary like um uh, and I know it 's hard to do, but like it like if you just had some kind of diary where you 're monitoring stuff like um yeah how fatigued you were or yep. your your perceived exertion for that run um uh your 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 overall stress levels your overall um yes how how well you 're sleeping and um if there are any aches and pains, so that you can better uh gauge as you go like if there's any correlations where or maybe you're consistently starting to pull up sore in a certain spot so then you can better change and 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 learn from it um and uh um yep uh, treat yourself as a as an individual rather than yeah get getting sucked into because you're off there often everyone's in a training group and you get inspired by the person you're running next to and and you sort of start copying what they're doing and and just and you know, that's that's good and all, but it has yeah, to Yeah, I agree. Some, um, you know some people can it.
0: move into a and a group scenario is a fantastic thing to talk about because you know, obviously, you know, in terms of intensity in relation to the, the running duration that you're going, if you've got a big group of um, runners training together, um, probably the actual say if you're going for a group jog or a long run arguably, you know, the intensity you're running at protects the best runner in that group that period of time. He's probably doing it relatively easier than everyone else. And people new to the club might be coming out and they might be regressing to a, you know, they might be running at four millimoles of lactate just going for a long run, for example, and wondering why they're sort of not getting the same training stimulus as someone who's really prepared. And and there was a small study I read recently that were looking at um, yep. training loads in, in a group of cross-country runners in the NCAA. And a couple of girls who were freshmen were had markers of overtraining syndrome, and they were, you know, they were regressing to running a little bit harder for their easy runs. And obviously, in that group scenario, it's hard to be able to avoid. You still want to be part of the group, and often I, you know, you know, I still advise different things. Like, you know, I even in my big training box for the Gold Coast, I'd run with my wife, you know, two times a week, and that might be, you know, five five ten to five twenty pace, and uh, for her it might be, you know, on the on the edge of a tempo or threshold run, and for me to be, a, you know, just time on legs and trying to collect some more. Pounding up the ground, which essentially is something I'm not good at or I don't have great experience, so there was a good training effect in that. Um, it just the purpose for the session was a bit different to what she was doing. So uh, and so, there's you know merit in trying to be able to at least understand which whatever run you go for, you, you know the purpose of that, and if you know the purpose of the session, the outcome you should be able to control yeah. a bit better than um, than if you don't know the purpose of the session. So. Well,
1: that's so yeah, so good like that that whole idea of like every time you go for a run, you like the first few Hold minutes, on. you're like, all right, what's the purpose of this run? Um, and and I think if you can like be really clear with that and it's, um, you know, it's hard at the moment with, um, you know, everything the world is going through, through at the moment um, in terms of having the goals and, but like relating it to your goal and and how does this run relate to my goal? And, and what my goal is, and, and not getting carried away. Yeah, with a Group effect. It's and, a, that that's that's um, super interesting. Uh, like, uh, yeah. some some of my patients um, but, come through for yeah. the
0: first time and trying to look at their, or even explain their um their training characteristics. A lot of the time, you know, park runs so accessible for runners. Most runners have been out and done a park run, and you know if they've run a fast park run in the past five or six weeks, I would do simple things like jump onto one of those like I saw you placed a running calculator up on on your your group page the other day, and I thought. And, you know, I'll just introduce them to that and say, well, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, if you ran as hard as you could on that park run and you might have been 23 minutes and, or 20, you know, 22 minutes, and that's about 4.15, 4.20 pace. And your threshold pace is more like about 4.40. And then you try and explain, you know, when you use these types of runs and what they're used for. And then, and then you sort of just design a template program for them, for example, and say, well, these are your easy runs. And sometimes people don't buy into that really easy run. They don't really enjoy running slow. But because... It's like anything to to be good at running slow, you sort of of need to expose yourself to running easy and then eventually it becomes quite comfortable. You become economical at it. But if you never really get, you know, expose yourself to running easy, it doesn't, it never really feels easy. Like if I go for a really easy run, I will still battle when I get to 90 minutes of running because I haven't done many 90 minute runs. So it's still a different type of training stimulus and you still need to expose yourself to it. And I think there's always a bit of fear with people who are introducing racing, they're enjoying running PBs, is that they run easy runs too often. They won't be able to go deep on race day. I still think if you go deep every now and then, like you still can go deep on race day. You can still push a little bit harder, hot RPEs or effort scales, even if you're exposing yourself to easy runs relatively often, because we see that at the top end. It's just perhaps maybe if you stay away from... um, you know, eat of harder running throughout your training session weeks too often. Perhaps maybe you just won't tolerate the effort as well, but you still might be able to go there.
1: Yeah, that that um that relates pretty well to um the the research that you um doing um at the moment. Um, so you, like uh, Michael, you're doing your your masters by re- you're your research candidate um into training yep. characteristics at the University of Adelaide, and you sort of um diving into um yeah i suppose the relationship between performance and injury um and um yeah just um how how we can sort of structure our training and and um i mean what have you found um so far like i know you're sort of just sort of doing yeah we're currently in the process of scoping review we're just looking at
0: um particularly runners and sort of um the effects of well you know the, the training characteristics and how it affects performance and also injury risk and Right now, the scoping review um, in the world of um, injury risk in relation to running intensity, it's a pretty vague area. And I was always interested in this because I thought perhaps maybe people regressing to particular training models, I guess you'd probably be well aware of Dr. Stephen Silas' work where they would sort of describe a training model via how you would distribute the intensity. And these models can be things like um, a low high-volume, low-intensity model, Um, obviously a threshold model where everything's sort of in that middle zone of running um, or a polarized model where people will sort of spend about 70 to 90% of their training in, um, in the lower intensity. And then they'll distribute the last 10 to 20% amongst the threshold and the high intensity. And we, first of all, the high, whole idea was to try and run a prospective study to see w- what characteristics do recreational runners have and uh, divide people into high performers and low performers. Mm-hmm. And, Basically, follow them for 20 weeks prospectively and, and, and take uh, two scales of intensity. There are many ways you can measure intensity, and um, we went with using a relative pace scale. So, we used the Daniels formula, the V dot. And essentially, what we, we looked at is sort of the time they spent in zones for their running, which obviously every measure of intensity can have a little bit of um, validity issues. Um, but we also got people to record their rate of perceived exertion mm-hmm. using the one to 10 Borg scale. So uh, while we haven't run the data through that yet, the whole hypothesis yeah. was to see, we, we, we sort of assumed that maybe the experienced runners would, would pick a model of um, a lot of low intensity involved, and more of a polarized model of training. And our recreational runners who were lower performers perhaps maybe yeah. regressed to more of a, a threshold model of training. So we, we're currently going through that data assessment now. And, and then I guess what we looked at on the side, we took some qualitative data as well to sort of work out why people are doing their training models. You know, so we looked at those who were coached. So we had some really high-performing runners who were self-coached and we had some low-performing runners who were, were actually coached as well. So we'd, we're trying to see if people actually you know, adhere to a model that's prescribed. Just because someone actually um, is prescribed a polarized model of training doesn't mean they actually necessarily adhere to it as well. And uh, so essentially, if they don't adhere to it, you know, yeah. we're looking for um, little snippets of information in the qualitative data as to whether why they don't do it, you know, do they run for purely enjoyment? And we know that, you know, high intensity running seems to have a higher relationship to, to enjoyment for many runners. Um, but what we have found is some of the qualitative data in the early days is that there are a lot of runners that really enjoy the low intensity as well. And, uh, and that seems to be amongst those cohorts of runners who are very experienced. And so I'm looking forward to deciphering a few of like why people choose their particular training models, their motivation and their their training sort of the behavioral characteristic arguably determines whether they can sustain a training protocol or not. And I think that might be a really important feature as to, you know, reduction of injury risk in a long-term setting as well. If someone's really patient and someone understands they're going to collect a lot of physiology from doing a lot of low intensity, uh, perhaps these are the athletes that, um, you know, go on after five to 10 years to, you know, to be really, really good high performers and, and so, even in the low performing group, I've noticed a few runners who actually, during this 20 week study period, moved from the low performing category to the high performing category, which we just utilize park run standards. So, you know, if you, you're a sub 17 male 5K runner or a sub 20 female uh, 10, so 5K runner in park run, we utilise as a, just a, just an objective guide to see if you're a high performer or a low performer. You know, you get your name on on the Park Run Weekly um you know newsletter and uh and, and we found a few, a few yeah. people that sort of you know moved towards um being high performers. They didn't pick a same they didn't pick the same model as um some of their colleagues as well. And they spent a lot more time training maybe that becomes interesting because I think maybe threshold model of training gets you fit really quick within you know four to six weeks. And we know that in the literature, people have looked at high intensity training for many years. It's easy to grab people and give them a high stimulus for six weeks and see a great positive adaption. But unfortunately you can't really run studies for five to 10 years. It's not really <laughs> economically viable to be able to do that. And so to see the benefits of low intensity well, that's probably built on years, and it's built on patience and um and unfortunately, that's still sort of research is a little bit vague, so all the data's done retrospectively, where you basically look at what the best have done and what their training habits were so this was a bit of an insight prospectively to see what people were doing and um you know who were high performers already so I'm really looking forward to bringing able to release the data in the next next year or so once it's all analyzed and um yeah, so it's uh yep.
1: That's like really interesting. Um but so it sounds like um yeah, like 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 so far like um it's it's hard, hard to know, but it sounds like it's gonna be like well hopefully you can get like a verdict, but like the thing with if personality like um has anything to do with like if some people just love going for um an easy, an easy kind of run, like a slow run, and, that, and that's sort of what they like doing. And then, then you have other personalities that like going yep. for really like that hard, hard kind of training. Um, um, like I suppose, like do you reckon that will, um, like that will um, determine the type of training that they like doing? And then I suppose, I suppose, I suppose there's also that addiction to running as well. Like a lot of people just love going for a run. I suppose um, sometimes even if people, like, know um, what they should do or, or they're advised to do something else, they seem to just keep doing... Yeah, um,
0: that's true, yeah. Uh, it's sort of, of like when like you have doing, one of the, suppose, someone who has a very working. stressful job yeah. and their internal loads are high and their family life's stress. And so, what they do, they they get to the end of the workday and they go out and they run a really hard run, and they add more stress to themselves. You think, oh, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but maybe for some yeah. reason that it's a balancing act somehow. But um, physically, it doesn't doesn't paint the picture of a sustainable model. So, um, so I think we'll probably. I mean, I think the future of trying to find yep. out why people decide to um to pick their particular training model. Like I know I'm not a a really um. A elite runner and, and I obviously don't have the behavioral characteristics of the one I try to, like I definitely have to work hard to, to make my easy runs easy and my hard runs hard on the early days, but now it seems to be very habit, habitual, but often, you know, you know, I think you briefed it there as well, that people sometimes become a bit addictive or to the consistency as well. And, and we know, we know that people sort of can, who people yep. who run through pain, there's been data, people who run through pain too often or high levels of pain often can cause more running related injury. And that's associated. But we also know that runners who are really experienced know what's a pain that they can run through. And those who are inexperienced maybe not be able to define what's something they can run through. It's so like, yep. I've arguably had Achilles and social tendinopathy for the last two years, but it hasn't really been something that stopped me from running. But the early days I was concerned by it. Whereas someone who gets that for the first time might actually stop yep. their running because they think this is not normal. And then eventually if they keep exposing themselves to it, they'll, they'll be fine. Yeah. But, but there are other issues as well. Like when you genuinely are sore, and yep. you you know you should take a day off, and then you decide to go out the door and you make it much worse, you, you decided because maybe you're a bit more you have that addictive personality. The one thing that perhaps maybe we find with a few of our runners who are yep. quite high performers and have quite good training habits is that they seem to be brave enough or confident enough in themselves to take two to three days off, knowing that that's a better outcome long-term than, say, pushing through that run that day. And that's that's what's really interesting. And I think the answer of why someone yep. does that lies in their behavioral characteristics more than even their their experience in running. So um yeah, so those sort of things are a bit more complex uh, to try and find the answer, but yep. perhaps maybe that's almost a bit more built in, perhaps.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and then um yeah, I was looking through um uh that uh paper um, that you put on my, um, Facebook oh, yes. route, yep. um, the other day, um, by, um, Stoggle. Um, uh, um, and, uh, yeah, it, like I was looking through, um, the, the, how he said like, um, yeah, polarized training, a lot, a lot of elite runners are doing sort of more that polarized model, but then he sort of said, um, yeah, often there's a period of preparation phase where you know, um, runners are doing more training in that sort of zone one where they're just sort of jogging around um, that um, high volume, low intensity, um, yeah, training Um, and uh, uh, like high volume and um, uh, uh, less of the high intense training. And then they go sort of to the competition phase where they're starting to add a bit more of that um, threshold training in and then um, the pre-competition phase. And then in the competition phase, um, Going to more of that polarized model um, yeah um d- like so have you found that in 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 your research as well um and um, uh, yeah I, I suppose um should should people be learning from this I and, think it's and, important and to try to and look at sort well of what sustainable they, they runners they have been
0: doing for a long time and try and you know work out why and try and see if we can implement them into runners want to be experienced and so this this polarized model of training seems to be um uh, uh, to me it sort of makes a bit of sense you know at the end of the day um if you attracting a really high stimulus of stress from some of your high intensity workouts you really need to you know take the time to adapt to that stress you take the day off the day after but it means you have to put a lot of value onto your low intensity and so you can still collect a bit of physiology from you know running slow but you know even from a muscular point of view you know if you're running really really fast and you have higher braking loads and um and you have you know uh, even increased peak loads going through tendons and tibias etc you know for those tissues to take time to adapt makes sense to me and polarizing your training and separating you know two or three days of um hard running with easy running seems like this really sustainable model of training and uh the one thing you see with any endurance athlete is that they train for a lot of time and unfortunately to train for a lot of well fortunately to train for a lot of time a lot of it probably has to be at the lower intensity and how you distribute your intensity varies a bit from the phase that you're in. You know, i running a case control with one of our runners last uh, two years ago. He ran uh, a low 29-minute 10K looking at his winter profile and in terms of just looking at the paces he ran at. You know, in, in the winter, um, he did collect a lot more duration, closer to 10 hours of running per week. And, and around about maybe 8 9% was sort of in those middle zones, of threshold uh, in the winter. And, and then, so, and then we had maybe a a, a polarized model or maybe a pyramid model where you had more threshold than high intensity, but then come obviously the track season, when the requirements for 3k, 5k and 10k were higher, he spent a lot more time at high intensity. But the one thing that was the same between the models is that there was a lot of low intensity in both those models, but just how he was spending the high intensity sessions was different relative to running a, you know, a 10k and a marathon compared to running a track race. And, uh, and I think that becomes really important in terms of obviously specific adaptions to your particular training, but in terms of the organizer training, the organization of training remain the same, but rather than doing, um, you know, 20 minutes at, uh, at a really high zone of intensity or really high effort, it might be 40 minutes at a moderate zone, but because of the duration's 40 minutes, the actual internal stress remains almost just as high because the stress is coming from the duration of the moderate intensity um, which obviously can be something that you 're trying to adapt to as well, so the, these this organization of a couple hard sessions per week mixed with a lot of easy jogging, and if you work really hard one day, you have to really respect it, and maybe our really high performers are really good at that. Maybe when they go go deep in a training session, they put value on that hard training session do recreational runners but the really good runners wake up the next day and like you said maybe value running at five minute k pace the next day because they truly need to be able to absorb the stress and make sure they're not overcooking it the day after and and i think that general patience and that um that value of every training session like putting a high value onto every training session its particular purpose that's when good organization starts to occur and that's when consistent habits start to occur as well
1: yeah it's almost like it it applies for performance and I- injury prevention like you're appreciating that like that easy run the day after a session is purely like a recovery regenerative sort of run where you're kind of it's just like an active active rest like you're you're um, flashing your all your running muscles with blood so that you can get blood to help you know circulate through those muscles yeah. to help sort of You know, repairing them and um, the process of recovery. Um, And it's almost like a great thing to, like, your first five minutes of your run. You're like, okay, I trained really hard yesterday. Yeah, and it's like you you earn the right to jog slow the day after,
0: if that makes sense. You know, you put in such good work, you earn the right to run slow. And I think maybe that's the sort of thought process we need to try and um, give to a lot of our runners who are learning for the first time you know sometimes that's the same thing with a day off but um it, it makes sense like in not just in terms of a physiological outcome of a polarized training model may reduce your risk of um you know overtraining syndrome but it may obviously decrease your risk of musculoskeletal injury as well like i mean there are like fine points to it if you do a big tempo run on the saturday and the next day you wake up and do a long run and you might run you know 20 seconds per k slower the load might not be that much different the stress might not be that much different and then suddenly I don't know if you're not aware of Cole Foster's work back in the 80s. He looked at sort of just um, simple things like the monotony of training and obviously, you know, the ability know. to be able to organize your training days, like trying to organize a high stress and a low stress day and that to decrease the monotony of training. And uh, so, and monotony is not running the same course every single day. To be something as simple as, let's say, we'll just use the points of, a, uh, you know, if you run at a particular heart rate for a duration one day, and it gives you 100 points of stress. And then the next day you run for a shorter duration at a high stress, but it gives you 100 points of stress. The training stress becomes quite monotonous. And a lot of the times there are those days where you really do need to lower your stress compared to your high stress days to truly absorb them. And, and that's that adaption phase of that hierarchy where that, that, that perhaps maybe that, you know, that Friday easy run or that Monday easy run. Arguably, while it's the least sexy thing on your Strava for the week, it arguably becomes one of the most important players to be able to absorb your high stress from your weekend of Saturday Sunday, <laughs> or your you know or your hard Thursday session, for example, and and you have to value those easy runs as an as a as a point of being able to um, to absorb the stress from those really hard sessions.
1: Yeah, and and then like it almost means that you can. Recover and then it allows you to turn up in two days' time to, to do the high intensity training that you had planned. Um, you know, say you had 400 meter repeats or, or something quite fast, you're not going to be lethargic. So, then you're on. going to be able to get the training stimulus that you wanted um, for, for the say the 5k that you're planning. Like, so say you had some pace work that was like meant yep. to be like a little bit quicker, a touch quicker than yep. your 5k pace, so that you, you're sort of trying to get that neuromuscular effect. Um, um uh at that neuromuscular stimulus like at, at least you've recovered so that you can actually hit it rather yes than on on the day. It yeah, you and had and a hard actually,
0: session the day after you've um, got a yeah, recovery run show. you feel tired but yeah. you think oh i don't want to see i don't want to see five minute k pace on my on my clock so you you sort of regress to running four thirties, but your effort internally becomes quite high and then when you get to your hard session coming up you, you may not execute it you well as well yep. or you may not um actually you know you may execute it really really well but there's this little um just silent sort of increase in training load of internal stress might creep up on you and that's when you might start you know getting higher you know markers of overtraining syndrome or perhaps maybe um that's when you start getting higher markers of, um you know off musculoskeletal pain as well so yeah it's it's a it's a case of trying to be able to absorb stress one day and and create it the next and and doing it for a long long period of time and and of course, like you mentioned right at the start, is that sometimes that's influenced by some of the other stresses. And you know, this time of, with, with what's going on with um, the virus, you know, people will be organizing their own training, um, and sometimes you know, taking taking their stress out on, on a bit of a run. Perhaps maybe um, this is a great time to learn some 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 good load monitoring skills and try and keep a keep a bit of a you know a guide as to how hard your effort was and times it by the duration you ran and create an arbitrary stress score and just see what your week looks like in terms of organization and say, well, you know, how does my training look like? Does it look like a little bit of a threshold model, quite well organized? And um, can I try something different perhaps then? Cause obviously there's no races coming up maybe making a small change now and trying to develop habits that we know that are quite sustainable amongst elite runners could be a really good platform for when racing happens in the future. So. Yeah
1: that's no, um that's no, such good um info that we've covered um yeah like so far and i feel like so many people like this is exactly the podcast that i was after um when when i wanted to get you on like cuz it's just the information that i want like a lot of runners to hear because i feel like it's the information that um trying to trying to get people to understand um when you see them in the clinic because yeah, so many of the running related injuries it's it's because of like a mismatch um in this area but I suppose the, the tricky, tricky thing is, um, is that everyone is different. And, and, um, like we said before, it's, um, I mean, I've got a really good analogy. Well, I think it's a good analogy. Uh, and I wanted to go over it. Um, uh, it's, um, so my, my wife, she has, um, her <laughs> nona, like makes the best spaghetti bolognese that I've ever had. And, um, and she's, um, 86 years old and she's been making spaghetti bolognese, um, for, yeah, you know, um, 60 odd years, and um, and I and I and I suppose she's perfected her craft over those 60 years, like so she knows the perfect mix of variables, like she knows, um, uh, but like she she even like like we were like, Nonna, what's it? What's your secret? And um, she told us like what she does like two years ago, and Jess and I were just looking at each other, and it just seemed like nothing special, um, but and, and I think training is nothing special, but it's um. I, th- I suppose she's just learned, um, learned, um, you know, like how to, how to sort of like how, what, what, um, ingredients yeah. to, to, to pick, um, how long to cook it for, uh, not to rush it, take the <laughs> time, um, yeah. you know, even, even if she's hungry, um, she keeps it simple. Um, you know, um, she, um, gives it heaps of care, um, And she takes ages to marinate the sauce. Um, uh, uh, Like she puts some little bits of bone, like marrow in it, um, or steak and sausage. And I think that just like chisels over time. So she gives it plenty of time rather than rushing it like we do. (laughs) And um, yeah. um, And then she just makes sure that she doesn't um, overcook it or undercook the pasta. Um, uh, She doesn't, like she's learned how much garlic or oil to add, um, she just learned over time well, that's... the best way to cook it to suit her and her family and, and, and our taste buds and, and through trial and, through and error. And <laughs> and that, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the um, process she chef. does is very simple. And I think that's,
0: that's running. Running is very simple in terms of trying to organize it. But I guess perhaps maybe simple is not always still easy. Um, so, for example, going for a really slow jog for a long duration is still sometimes hard for yep. people to do. And um, whereas just like going to run a hard session is, the formula is very simple, but executing it is actually quite yeah. difficult sometimes. And um, and I think sometimes trying to get people to at least experience it and dab their toe in the water and try and become that, if you start experiencing it, uh, and obviously you're very patient, you do it for a long time, you will find your model. I mean, there was a great paper that I'm reading from the 1970s from Wilts, Um, and I'll have to send this one through to you or attach it to your show notes and stuff. But essentially, it was looking at sort yeah. of people who have been outside yeah. the normal to particular training yeah. models. And they looked at some 400 meter runners. They looked at Kino's training, but they also looked at Ron Clark's training as well. And it was fantastic looking at it because he ran pretty hard most days, like, <laughs> and, and, but it worked for him. You know, he, he had multiple world records and, and, um, yeah. and the same thing, I think with Derek Clayton, that a lot of the runs were sort of like in that, like um, that middle zone and all sort of running everything, not too easy, not too hard. And, and, and if he could sustain it, you know, these guys would rock up and they run a world record. I, I guess yep. maybe they are very adaptable humans. Their tissue stress might be quite adaptable, and uh, and maybe that's there was magic in the fact that um, they had other features that not everyone has, yep. and and so that, as you can see people, you know, assess what you would call making training errors. But for one yes. person, it might not be a training error; it might be their training protocol. Whereas for another person, it will be a pure training error. So that's why they're, that human individual variation is really yep. important to try and learn over time. And that's the, probably the biggest thing I've noticed with coaching. I'm starting to find some athletes don't need to go to the well at all, but they can still do it on race day and they just respond beautiful to a threshold type model of training and other, other runners, um, they, they use threshold running as their high stimulus yep. and they get enough adaption from that to continue to improve. Whereas others, you know, others who are really experienced, who are really good at threshold running might need to go a bit deeper. They might need to run at those high intensities to try and just to keep themselves improving. They need to attract a slightly higher stimulus to be really, really high performers. And, And it seems as you become even better and better and better, you need to searching. you're trying to squeeze out a little bit more physiology each time. And sometimes that means the pole ends even separate more. You need to do more running at slow intensity and even more running at the high intensity. And that, that goes back to the bill a study where she found that the difference between top class runners and um, just high performers and marathon runners in these uh, European marathon runners that the, the distance runners who are the real top class, just they ran a lot more slower runs and their high intensity was just a bit more high intense. So, And I think Casado found the same thing recently as well, that maybe the better runners, they, they probably spend a bit more time at their really high intensity 3K, 5K work, and they just run a bit more as well. And essentially, you're trying to just attract a bit more physiology. Yeah. But in the early days, perhaps maybe it's something simple. You think of like trying to give you the least amount of training stress to elicit the biggest response training-wise. And sometimes... For someone that might be staying at 30, 40 Ks a week with one hard session a week, and then eventually they'll adapt, then you add more. <laughs> the puzzle is, you know, which part do you add more? More duration, intensity. And I think that's built on their, their history of injury and their goals. So, yes. Yeah, it takes time. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's so interesting what you're saying about um, Derek Clayton and
1: Ron Clark. Because um, I, I remember um, reading something similar about Dee Castella. Like, you, everyone knows how solid he looked, like how big <laughs> his quads were and how, how muscly his legs his thighs were. And uh, uh, some people say like, that was one of his biggest attributes because that allowed him to just tolerate, um, you know, 200 K weeks, just week after week. Um, Yeah. Spot on. um, So like it shows that, yeah, but then like, you know, people get sort of um, roped into seeing that and they're like, Oh, he did that. like I can do it. But it's it's, it's just so different and everyone's got their strengths and weaknesses and you just got to play to your strengths and, 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 and where your weaknesses are and, and taper your training to
0: that. Yeah, spot um, on. And I think that's a great point. And I think from a personal point of view, like it took me a while to come to grips that maybe I don't have the best adaptability adaptability to high intensity training. So I just need to expose myself a bit less to that. Whereas I, I you know, I might be a better runner if I could do more of it, but that's not one of my strengths. And unfortunately, I think consistency for me is more important than um trying to get to a model that I think I probably never be able to handle. But yep. some, some people can. Some people can actually handle those really high intense models and sustain it really well. And, and that's what attracts the biggest stimulus for them. And, and that's fantastic if you identify that person, you work with them with that, but it, it may not be for everyone. And sometimes that is trial and error. And other times it's uh sometimes it's just following your intuition, which obviously probably needs to be calibrated for the first period of time. And then eventually you will work the puzzle out yourself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, like, a, it really is, um, it's it's a game of consistency, and, and I think like more often than not in running, if you take less risks and you just try to try to stay on the park and um, just keep doing sort of uh, you know training that you think um, you know it might be mediocre, but at least you're stringing weeks together. Um, like if you did you know that for a whole year and were hardly off the park, or two years and you're hardly injured. Yep. Um, you know, you you you're you're almost guaranteed to be running well. You're almost guaranteed to, you know, um as long as, you know, the the the, tra- the training is um you know, you know, if you haven't got injured over that length of time, then you you must
0: you must be training reasonably well. Yeah, it's spot on. I think that's the key, isn't it? So I think and for most of us as well, I know you're a a low two twenty marathon runner as well. I mean, yeah. you could probably still be in that position to, um, to take less risks and still, still run times like that. And then one day you might want to, you know, you might need to sneak yeah. towards a 218 and that might be yeah. the point when you take a few more risks, for example. And yeah. and we, we do see that, but for most of the population, you probably don't need to take many risks until you hit that plateau. Do you? And, um, yeah. and that, and that could be a long, long time. So that, that yeah. the ability to be able to, um, to add a bit more racing into your schedule, sometimes ends up being a great outcome for new runners and, and often, you know, racing a bit more is a risk in itself and, and sometimes getting yourself to a position where you can race healthily quite consistently. People just continue to improve from that bit as well, don't they? Yes. Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah, I suppose, I suppose, like, yeah. It, um, yeah, and I remember, um, like, reading, like, Tim Gabbett's work and and him just saying that, um, yeah, like, the uh, more experienced sort of AFL footballers, um, um, like, you know, say they've been playing for an, a club for 10 years, um and they've just been regularly um, on the roster, but they might have been injured for four weeks. Yep. Um, it, they often they often take the risk on them and put them straight into the first um, on, on on ball, yep. um, especially if it was a really important match, um, just because they they know that they've got the the background and that huge um, I suppose yellow pages of training yep. um, behind them, yep. um, and so it's kind of like a calculated risk. But yep. I suppose when, when you haven't got that backlog of consistent training behind you, then then it, it, it's um, like that's when we're just seeing that boom and
0: bust cycle. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. I, sometimes there are chances you want to risk it and uh, there are times you don't have to. It's like when someone misses their local fun run, for example, and they're really depressed about it. Well, there'll be another fun run four weeks down the track as well and then eventually by the time that time comes around, they'll forget about their injury and they'll get on with it. A different story if someone's lining up for the Olympics, for example, and they... um. <laughs> And they have to take a few more risks at that period of time. Of course, there's, and that obviously it's the same in AFL, there's a bit more money in AFL and there's a bit more like reward at the end if they win games, so they can take a few more risks. But for most of our runners, it's sort of trying to say, well, if your Achilles are sore, how about we spend three or four weeks of just easy jogging and in the background, we build up the calf tolerance and you won't lose it. I think you'll still be very consistent. And then suddenly when they return back to their their racing schedule, they won't be far away from what they were, but it was just trying to get people to, you know, stay consistent, but just try and modify a variable. Yeah.
1: And yeah, there, there's that um, value in like, um, you know, having someone else to talk to, whether it's a coach or a, a close friend, uh, when you've got a decision like that, or, or, you know, if you are making the decision yourself, you have to really be honest with yourself and, and think third person about it and go, Oh, what would I tell someone else in this situation? Yeah, spot um,
0: on. And that's one yeah. thing we looked at in our study as well. We looked at those people who were, we're looking at injury risk throughout the 20 week prospective study, but also those people who are coached and non-coached and trying to see if, even variables like someone else making this decision for you, is that more of a protective factor than sort of making the decision yourself, you know, regardless of experience. So, um, which I'm interested to see what the outcome of that is, because I think, you know, it's, it's a bit easier to make, you know, a good decision for someone else. But sometimes when you're trying to make a decision for your own sake, you're not as good at making that decision, but, um, maybe the best are, maybe the, the, maybe those who are less experienced just aren't quite as patient and good at making that decision.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, Oh, i'm just wary of how much i've taken up your time michael like um yeah i'm 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 so thankful for your time on this podcast and and everything that you've talked about is um being so valuable um I just wanted to probably wrap up now and um uh, I, but i just want um like if 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 a runner like um you know he's from adelaide or south australia or you know or um you know even um, if they wanted to reach out online like how, how could they contact you and where's the best place to um, uh, find you yep
0: yeah, i'm uh, I'm practicing as a sports podiatrist at the sports and arthritis clinic um, which can be found online um, I'm doing predominantly most of my consults at this point in time on on telehealth um, but I'm, uh, which I think will probably be the case for an indefinite amount of time we're not hundred percent sure but in terms yep. of just information and education i still I still post stuff on my social medias Um the sports and arthritis clinic on Facebook, but also I have a Twitter handle, which a lot of my research and update stuff for my scoping review process is being leaked each, each sort of week where it's, uh, it's just knitters N I double T A Z. And they're probably the easiest ones to truly find me. Like I wouldn't jump on my Instagram. It's like mainly pictures of my cat. So. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and, um, and so
1: ne- what, what's now for you, like in terms of, um, yeah, life and, uh, and running, um, yeah, over the foreseeable future. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. Like, I will probably, our LA Harriers group probably won't uh, be running, obviously, as a group for much longer. And so I've sort of suggested for some of the runners to try and buddy up with one other runner and keep, keep each other honest, perhaps in this period of time. So, a couple of the juniors that I coach and even one of the seniors, I'll probably run um, as much as I possibly can with them. Um, and I feel like with the juniors, how quickly they're improving. If I'm continuing to train with them by the end of the winter, I'll still be in probably PB shape because they're they're progressing much quicker than what I um, what I am. So so I'll keep running, you know, 80, 90, 100 Ks a week. But uh probably the biggest exciting thing in a couple of months' time. My wife's expecting it, well, we expect our first kid in July. And uh so, oh, awesome. so that'll be a bit of a game changer and um and so yeah, my, yeah I guess probably in this this time at this moment trying to look after her and and uh, just trying to get a good balance. And I think that's what our Athletes Club's been fantastic with. We've got a lot of guys at our club who have families and have, you know, full-time work. And uh, and it's just so easy to be able to um, to communicate with guys with, with similar interests as well. But, um, you know, research probably might slow down a little bit in this point in time. I've got great supervisors in uh, Dominic Thualis from Adelaide um, Uni and Joel Fuller who did some great stuff with uh, minimalist footwear. Um, his research probably probably in the last five or six years has been, been fantastic work and so I, they, they've yep. been able to sort of you know allow me to not put as much emphasis on the research at this point in time because of course things like you know your work and your family sort of prioritize and and uh yeah the ratio yep. continues to shift so i'll just keep doing all the stuff that i'm doing and and, and try, try yep. and keep finding balance and yeah keep yep. following the podcast and keep keep up <laughs> the great work as well so it obviously keeps us going in these solo runs so it's enjoyable yeah no uh, yeah thanks michael um yeah we'll wrap it up
1: um thanks so much for everything that you've done today and um yeah we'll um keep in touch
0: absolute pleasure mate thanks mate have a good week
1: no worries. you bye. too bye